about today's program, about this discussion and conversation today. Um, this was one of the most requested repeats um, that we have had in, in at the PRT. And that was, drum roll, go ahead, Doc, take it away. Well, you listen, a couple, uh, about a year, uh, two seasons ago, we had with us the Slave Food Project. And it was just intriguing to talk about the Slave Food Project and what they were doing, what their their ministry was. And so we asked them to come back and to share with us some of the things they are doing now and give us a little bit of update and maybe some new insights as to how we can have uh, this love affair with this particular thing we call food and make it uh, healthy for us. So we're just glad to have with us Doctors uh, Columbus, Baptiste and Doctors uh, Eric Walsh back with us from the Slave Food Project. All right, let's bring them on. Bring them on. Here they are. None other than my wife finally calls the docs. Man, you guys, I just <laughs> want to say this. I got to say this up front. I got to give a shout out for my wife. She, since you guys are on the first time, she cannot get away from watching your productions of the Slave Fruit Food Project. Mm. And um, just, just what a ministry you guys have. Just totally um, engrossing, informational, uh, motivational, all of that. And uh, we just want to really appreciate, uh, let you guys know we appreciate in my household um, what you guys are bringing to the table in this discussion on, on health and on, on healthy living. And really, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leap. And I don't know if it's, a, I, I, I know Eric Erickson say it's not a big leap, but this is a social justice issue as well. And we're in the midst of Black History Month. Um, just what a what a, a, a unique way it is to to really look at, at social justice and Black history in a very in a very positive way. So thank you, gentlemen, so much for what you've done. We're going to give you guys just a minute and a second after we have a word of prayer um, to greet the audience. Um, we are excited about you guys being here. So just after Pastor Wade gives us a, a, a opening word of prayer, we're going to turn it over to you guys and just give you a couple seconds here to say hello to the audience. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for our guests joining us. And we thank you for our viewers who have joined us also. We pray, Lord, that this conversation will be fruitful and will be uh, palatable for us to make decisions for our lives, for our betterment of our lives. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, look, before they get started, I'm going to say this one more time. If you know somebody's supposed to be here, y'all better get them. This is this is this is going to be good today. Um, so tag somebody, uh, um, uh, copy the link to somebody, get them in. Um, Dr. Baptiste, um, let's start with you, man. We'll give you the time just to say, say hello to to anybody, everybody you want to want to uh, you want to tell us where you are, what you're doing, what's going on with you since we've seen you last. The time is yours, sir. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here again. And thank you, pastors, for having us back on and to the virtual congregation out there. You know, it's appreciated. And to Sister Paul, we appreciate your support. I'll tell you the words of affirmation. They never uh, fail to encourage us. So it's very encouraging to hear words of affirmation that our efforts are being uh, are not falling on deaf ears. But I'll tell you what we're doing is a work that's necessary. And it's a work that is an additional arm to what you all are doing, you know, because you cannot achieve uh, the spiritual wellness with an in absence of, of, of physical wellness. And so what we're mm -hmm. trying to do is to educate the community and to really be a, a, an agent of change, agents of change. And so we're, we're steady on that course. We're steady on that path and we're doing it every which way we can and through whatever media and whatever form 
that opens its, itself up to us. So uh, continue to pray for us, pray for our ministry as we go down this road and this journey and trying to convey information that is much, much, much needed to end the thing called health disparities inside of our community. Mercy. Thank you. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Dr. Walsh, my friend. Good to see you, man. Yes. Good to see you as well. Great to be back. Um, you know, for, for me, I mean, we, we talk a lot about stress at slave food. Mm. And um, even looking at the global events right now, mm. um, it's a time of stress again. You know, it's Matthew 24, um, 7, uh, jumping out at you. Um, and these are times where people can get very um, stressed. And stress is a lot of things. Shortens telomeres, which is a sign that you're shortening your life. Um, put you in a state of fight or flight. Um, but part of our message is, is that Adventist health message. And one of the pillars of the laws of health is to trust in God. Mm. Um, and so part of our health message really does sit in that. Um, and there are many people who are sick because they don't know to trust in God. Matthew mm. 24 and verse 8 says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. So as we mm -hmm. talk today, I mean, we really have to talk about the fact that our health message is an anti-stress, anti-inflammation message in a time when the world is going to be quite stressful and chaotic. Um, and so, you know, what we are hoping to, you know, as we share today, especially from the Black experience, um, this is a, this message is more needed now probably than ever. But, well, listen, um, we, let's jump right in. Um, I'm just waiting to, to, to glean um, some, some nuggets I could hold on to. When you were last here, you truly, um, took the scales off of my eyes. But within the last uh, couple of months, you know, we're beginning to go back out. Um, options are being opened up in terms of food and stuff like that. But yet still, um, we have recognized that there has been a, this is a word I never used in the same sentence with food, weaponization. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain the concept of weaponization of food and and also then describe uh what your title is about this you know you, you you're part of the slave food project um share the weaponization food and then we want to talk a little bit about what is slave food and we're gonna we're gonna open it up to uh pastor baptiste dr baptiste first okay and actually what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna let i'm gonna let uh eric kick it off with uh dr walsh kick it off with weaponization of food and then i'll i'll okay. chime in with slave food so the weaponization of food, actually, this is a good time to talk about it. What we found during the pandemic is that um, there was an increase in comfort food consumption, fast food consumption. In fact, some um, unhealthy foods are actually resurrected from olden days and brought back to market. Um, the weaponization of food speaks to a lot of things. And one of them is um, using food to control people. Um, and using food to actually injure people. And it ties into the slave food side of it. When our ancestors were slaves, food was one of the ways that you could actually control um, the slave, right? They had to work for their food um, and you didn't have to give them the best quality food. Um, and so food was weaponized. It was used to break a person's spirit and to control an individual. Um, and that's something that we see still to this day. The modern food and drug industries, um, especially the food industries we're talking about now, have figured out a way to use food to get us to continually go back and buy. That's why they say, once you pop, you can't stop. But you can't eat just one. Um, and so food has been weaponized um, through the combination of salt, sugar, and fat, through food engineers, food chemists, to make it so that you can't put the food down. And that is mm. weaponized food, especially when you know 
The food is making people sick, costing them their livelihood and ultimately costing them their lives. Yeah, it's 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 deep when you look at the concept of weaponization of food and, and it transitions immediately into to the slave food project. But as you really consider the concept of weaponization of food, that many of these food producers, these manufacturers, they characterize consumers as users uh, and they want frequent mm. users of food. Right. And so as they begin to, to actually test out the exact levels of sugar and of salt, according to your gender, according to your age, according to your ethnicity, to figure out precisely the amount that's going to attract you. And that's why many of us, we, we observe this in everyday fashion, mm. that we go into certain neighborhoods, into grocery stores, and there are certain items that are not available in other grocery stores because of the fact that there's an understanding of what we are trying to feed certain groups of individuals based upon sales. Uh, the business mm. of business is business. And so when we look at the weaponization of uh, food, it dovetails into slave food, which is the manipulation of nutrition for profit and for power. Uh, it's a manipulation of nutrition to figure out how I can make the biggest amount of money, the, the largest uh, assets that I want to go ahead and glean. And that's really what it's about. And so when we uh, came together, Dr. Walsh and myself came together, we were really looking to figure out this interplay between stress, uh, this unique form of stressor called uh, discrimination, discriminatory stress and the additional level of nutritional stress in the formation of health disparities. Because we were seeing mm -hmm. this continual onslaught in this widening gap that became ever-present during the pandemic, right? We all saw it. But this, mm -hmm. this ever-present widening gap of health disparities that became uh, that, that continues every single day. And that's what we're dealing with during this, this month of Heart Health Month and Black History Month in reflection. If wow. You know, you know, as you were as you were sharing there, one minute, Dr. Paul, as you were sharing there, I it just it just clicked now. It makes sense. I, I just this week, my wife and I, we were talking about what we wanted to eat. She wanted to cook some homemade soup. So she sent me to the store and she sent me with the list, green banana, yam, uh, some corn. And when I went to the local grocery store, they didn't have any green bananas. They didn't have any yam. Uh, you know, I wouldn't call the name of the the, the big W store that we, we, we shop at. And it made se it makes sense. In certain neighborhoods, you don't have what you really need in order to have that. So, wow, thank you so much for sharing that today. Dr. Uh, I, Paul? I, I could hear Dr. Dr. Walsh thought he was saying starch, starch, starch. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, uh, those, are, those are good starches. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that's part there of the you problem. Go. It's there was a question that came in through um, the chat. Can people really be addicted to carbs? The problem is that our society has oversimplified carbohydrates. And what you have to understand is that carbohydrates are perfectly fine until they're processed and the fiber is stripped away from them. So my parents are Jamaican, so we eat yam and chocho and, and dashing and sweet potato and all that green kind banana. of stuff. And, and green, green banana. bananas. Those are, those are they have soluble fibers, insoluble fibers, very good to feed the gut bacteria. And it's what our African ancestors ate before they were enslaved. Um, so they were very good, they're very good foods. Carbohydrates become addicting when you strip the fiber from them. And what, you've, what you're left with is sugar, really, um, a combination of fructose and sucrose, um, which is very simple and they're very addicting. And so there are studies, I, in some of our slides, we show you pictures of our MRI scans of the brain of someone who's a chronic sugar user next to someone who's a chronic cocaine user, and they both look very similar because it mm. messes with the dopaminergic pathway parts of the brain like the substantia nigra. And so you change the brain 
and how it responds to pleasure when you eat lots of sugar. Um, so yes, the studies pretty much kind of reinforce sugar is addicting the chemical structure of sugar. It's actually very similar to alcohol. Um, and its effects on the liver are very similar to alcohol. So those carbs are addicting. When you eat whole sweet potatoes, brown rice, quinoa, uh, with the fiber, it's a very different food, releases the sugars from it very slowly, um, and feeds your gut microbiome, the bacteria that live in your gut. We'll talk more about it as we go through this. So those foods are actually quite healthy, but the simple processed stuff we buy in the store, the boxes of macaroni and cheese, um, the you know spaghetti, the white rice, the white bread. Uh, there's no, there is no nutritional value to most of that stuff. It just becomes sugar yeah. once you digest it. Yeah. Well, listen, um, Dr. Batiste, I wanted to kind of circle back to a, a comment or a reference that you made about the impact of of the pandemic and how that has. I don't remember exactly you said has brought to light some inequities or some disparities, but could you guys just speak to that um, um, very quickly? What what did we see during the pandemic that spoke to some disparities or some inequities in terms of health and, and food, et cetera? Uh, I'll tell you, what we saw during the pandemic is all we saw is that the closet door was swung open. <laughs> the bed sheets were moved up so we could see what was swept underneath the bed. And that has always been present there since, as long as African people of African descent have been on this continent. And we have seen this stark health disparities that have existed as long as we've existed throughout the slavery era, throughout the, the, the 20th, early 20th century and persistent to now, as long as we've co collected data. And so we've seen that African-Americans are more likely across the board to have high blood pressure. You're more likely to have diabetes, twice as likely to have diabetes. And diabetes happens about every 17 seconds, the new person is diagnosed with diabetes. We're more likely to die from cancers. We're more likely to have heart disease at a young age and by middle age, over 50% of people of African descent have heart disease. But here's the catch. You're less likely to receive treatments for it. Uh, that when we review the medical literature in general, that despite having the disparities of having the, the highest risk and burden of chronic disease, many people of African descent were less likely to receive medication, uh, excuse me, uh, procedures that are required. Uh, they're less likely to be referred even for what I do, interventional procedures in the throes of a heart attack being referred for advanced procedures. And so these disparities became stark and it began the process of uncovering why exactly do they persist? And that's mm -hmm. where there's subtly have begun this process has started. where We started to look at this idea of social determinants of health, uh, where you live, where you work, where you play, where you pray and trying to figure out what is the confluence of issues that are playing a role in this thing called health disparities. Wow. wow. And, and I would jump in and say, one of the things that the pandemic really did a good job of, uh, like uh, as uh, Columbus said, it swung, swung the closet door open. It also functioned as an accelerator. Um, it was like you poured fuel on a fire. So black people already had significant health disparities and health problems. And when you, when you add it in this pandemic, and this, this virus was a unique virus in that was it's very pro-inflammatory. Um, and so you'll hear me talk about that a lot today. And because stress is also pro-inflammatory and the standard American diet, the SAD diet is also pro-inflammatory. If you were someone who was stressed eating the standard American diet and got this virus, especially early on in the first like year and a half, up, up until probably about last November, you were going to get pretty sick. Um, especially if you weren't immunized, you were going to get very sick. 
because your body was primed to get sick from this thing. Um, and so lifestyle had a lot to do with it. We know vitamin D levels. We know sun exposure and not direct sun exposure, even sun from the shade. Um, all of these things had a lot to do with it. But the antioxidant effects of eating of a plant-based diet, um, uh, fruits and vegetable-rich diet, really was protective. And so you started to see all of these things, even um, the way that our, 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 um, our the, the, the primary receptor um, uh, that, the, that the spike protein plugged into um, is in a dysregulated state in a lot of us. And that's, um, you know, ACE, the ACE2 inhibitor, the ACE2 receptors, which a lot of black people actually take medicines to try and block that receptor. So the virus really worked to show things. It was like, a, like, a, like I said, like an accelerator. Then it exposed America's, well, not, you know, that's not so secret secret, dark secret. And that is that there are significant health disparities driven by many factors that can be reversed if, um, you know, certain things are changed. Wow. Well, I'm going to throw in there, sorry, sorry, Pastor, you know, too, as well, to follow up with, with what Eric mentioned, is that the, the, the unique fashion about 2020 and the pandemic is that we also were faced with the visual effect of, of the, the social outburst, right, of the, of the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. These things came to light, the recognition, so these stressors of either things we had individually gone through as unique individuals or that we had heard stories passed along through the generations that raised the level of stress in our bodies. That study after study has shown the correlation between stress and disease and racial discrimination is a form of a stressor. And that these things increase the inflammatory process in our body. That these, these stressors now, they heighten our attractiveness towards these foods, these highly processed foods wow. that Eric mentioned they act as an antidepressant, anxiolytic, but very short-lived. They're fake resources. We say stress equals demands minus resources. They're fake resources. They're fool's gold. And so we continue to go back for them over and over, thinking that it's solving our problem of absence of resources, when all it's doing is inflaming the process of disease inside of us. So now we, as people of African descent, uh, we're in the front lines not only front lines as front worker, uh, as, as essential workers, not only front line in terms of the environments that we live in, but front line now as we're faced with this stressor in the midst of this viral storm wow. that hit us. Mm. Yeah. That, so that. so, so one, of, one, of, one of the things that you, you're sharing there has me thinking, it's the information is simply, um, you know, you, if I were to break it down into the basic, the basic building blocks, you, you talked about, Dr. Walsh, you talked about stress being a major culprit in, in, in the situation that we're in here. And, and, and when I hear it, I said, wow, if it's just stress, then I, I should be able to just get rid of stress and I should be fine. But it's more than that. Sometimes we get the education, but we tend not to want to believe it or we tend not to really want to uh, hear it. Or what, what is it with us? And I'm, I'm speaking from, a, from, from one of the people groups that we don't believe what we're hearing. Um, why, why is it so hard for us to accept what it is and, and make the changes to do better? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna first answer that spiritually, since we're on a pastor show, and then I'll come back to the pathophysiology of it. Um, one of my favorite Bible verses I learned in Cunningham Hall at Oakwood University when I was a freshman, and a, a gentleman from California, Nelson, sat us down and showed us Romans chapter seven. I'd never studied Romans chapter seven in church before. 
And what Romans chapter seven says is the good that I would, I do not. And that mm. which I would not, that I do. do. Then the verse says, oh, wretched man that I am, who, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Mm. Now, Dr. James Kyle, some of you all know, great preacher and mm -hmm. physician out on the West Coast, good friend of all of ours, I'm sure. I love him to death. He came to our church at Rubidoux years ago and did a health and temperance day. And he said something that has stuck with me. I use it all the time, and I always give him credit for it. He said, if you listen to your body, your body will conspire to kill you. Mercy. Wow. Your body will conspire to kill you. And, and then I went and did a study once on the flesh. What does the Bible say about trusting the flesh? Do not lean on the arm mm. of the flesh. Over and over, it warns you that your body cannot be trusted. Wow. Because we have mm. propensities and desires that are antithetical to our own good. Right? Adam mm. ate the fruit from Eden, mm -hmm. even though he knew the consequences. Cain did what he did to Abel, despite knowing the consequences. I can go all the way through the scripture. Mm. Right? So when it comes to us, and something that Dr. Batiste just said, we eat these foods because stress is something that you want to self-medicate against. So what happens is your body says, I need, I need, I need. Make me feel better. And so stress actually triggers your desire for comfort foods. The comfort foods feel better. But the, the studies that we show when we do our talks, laden with sugar, salt, and fat, but especially the combination of sugar and fat. So them honey buns, right? Um, the, 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 listen, the bun and cheese for the West Indians out there. When you combine the fat with the sugar, like you do with most baked goods, it feels good. It releases dopamine in the brain. You get a mm -hmm. reprieve. But as was just mentioned, it is a fake resource. That is the spiritual side of it. Because in a mm -hmm. sense, this is why Paul says your God is your belly. Right? Because there are more mm -hmm. receptors around the that 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 are that are involved in depression and anxiety in our digestive tract than in our brain. That's wow. why you feel things gutturally. There's a great book I read wow. on that. Gutturally, you feel things. So when you so when you eat this food and you stimulate the GI tract, it's like your second brain. It now tells your body everything's all right because we got the fix. <laughs> but you didn't. But you didn't really solve the problem. Stress is dangerous in, in a pandemic because when you release when you're stressed, you release cortisol. Cortisol is the hormone that secondarily also regulates the inflammatory response of your immune system. If you are chronically high cortisol level. What happens after a while is you actually turn off the ability for your immune system to regulate overreacting and becoming inflammatory. That's what stress does, right? So wow. in a pandemic with a virus that creates inflammation, stress became even more dangerous. And then as, 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 as Columbus said, think about what happened. All of the police involved violence. And we talk about the police involved violence. We seldom talk about the actual rise in violence, period, in our neighborhoods, yeah. right? There's been a, yeah. a, a wave of killings in our neighborhoods, you know, and then, you know, we them throw in the global stuff like what happened in the Ukraine. So, the, so physiologically, you get to a place where you really want these foods. And even when you know better, it's mm -hmm. difficult to turn away. Why? Because in a mm -hmm. essence, that is the definition of addiction. Something you do despite knowing its consequences. Wow. So it's not that people don't know. It's Romans chapter seven. Mercy. Mm. 
My wow. goodness. Woo. Yeah. Well, well, listen, we, we hit some, I, I see a couple of questions here from our, from our audience that I, I want to, I want to let you guys uh, take a, a chance to address. Um, first one is coming from Miss McKenna's classroom. And she's asking, how do I get this up here? Um, she's asking, how about genetically modified plant-based food? Has that been discussed yet in the context of stress and inflammation? And then she follows that up with, she's asking because I planted a grape tomato, um, didn't bury it completely, checked, checked it for more than two months, and it had remained in the same state. Some five months later, it has begun to shrivel. Any thoughts on plant-based, um, genetically modified foods? Well, I don't know the club. I'm not a botanist, uh, so it'd be difficult for me to jump in and answer this fully, except to say that we avoid genetically modified things. I think until the science is in better, we you know we we encourage people to eat organic foods if at all possible. Grow your own foods. So you can buy the seeds and grow it yourself. Um, is one of the things that I would honestly say. So. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to, you know, I, I thought you were going to ask about more about the plant-based uh, meat substitutes, um, because the, some of them, you know, you got to make sure you're not eating too much of the soy protein isolate that's in them, um, because they are, you know, it's, it's, you can overdo the protein from that perspective. And I'll let Dr. Batiste jump in on that. But um, yeah, that's one of the things that I would really be worried about more so. I'll jump in there. And what I'll say about, about the genetically modified foods, like Eric mentioned, is the fact that there's so much that we don't know. I think that's the fear and the concern generally that as we begin to splice and we're doing different things to kind of create essentially resistant fruits and vegetables, right? Resistant to insects so they can have staying power. And as we begin to manipulate their processes, we may extract out. Now, some of this manipulation is not for it's it's for our own appealment, like for the eye visually. Take the tomato, for instance, that that modifications have been made. So it's bright red. And it's large, right? But we know that the more colorful, right? Not even to go down the road of saying the darker the berry, the sweeter the juice, but the more color, the more color and reflection that is contained within fruits and vegetables, we know that that is rich in the power and the source for antioxidants, that there's huge benefits that are there. So as we begin this process, as man oftentimes does, we try to manipulate things. We try to tinker mm. with it that it results in ill effects long-term. And this is what has played out over the, since the dawn of time. So that's part of the reason why I personally try not to ingest genetically modified um, uh, uh, ingredients if, as much as possible until we gain, glean more information like Eric mentioned. Well, listen, we had a, 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 a section a little while ago to segue to the next question and we, we ran past it and I'm going to kind of bring us back to it. So when we're talking about, and particularly with this being Black History Month, when we talk about the weaponization of food, um, what role if any, has racism played in that process, the weaponizing food? Um, and, and what role has racism played in the creation of health disparities within society? Is that something that is just natural, that is genetic, or has there been some intentionality behind some of the disparities that we've talked about before? <laughs> that's a loaded one. That's a loaded, that's a, that's a loaded question. So, you know what? I actually what I'll do is I'll I'll start in, but we'll kind of tag team because this is this is a lot of information here um, that needs to get out to the audience and so forth. When we look at the weaponization of food, and as far as the, its intent, has there been any intentionality as it relates to it? I think you have to take a few steps back, even beyond the food, 
and you're looking really so at how racism has played a role in terms of neighborhoods, played a role in terms of opportunities. And so as you begin to take a step back and you look after the great migration and you see where folks were fleeing the, the South and moving to areas of Chicago and in California and in New York and various places like that, how they were comprised inside of areas that did not afford them the opportunity to have patches of grand of land to grow, that they had to kind of cook real fast out of little central kitchen areas, that as a result, African-Americans became early adopters of fast food, wow. uh, that mm-hmm. as you begin the process of looking and even in, from a cultural standpoint, being unable to enter in through the front door of having to get your food from the side or the back or going through like a drive-through, that all of these things began to become ingrained. Then as wow. cities began to happen, what ended up happening, right? There was redlining, that there was partitioning of where you had the opportunity to live, unincorporated areas that were not funded by the government agencies for education or walkways or parks or things of that nature. Uh, so now we created this, now I won't even say food deserts, I see that, I'd say food apartheid areas, that these are created, wow. these were not natural occurrences, these were man-made occurrences that, that transcribed there. And so as you look at all of these factors now, um, that began to play and where you had state highways that would intersect and bisect communities of color, dividing them eliminating business opportunities for grocers and things of that nature there and racism playing a role in the competition that now you begin to squeeze out the ability to glean health promoting foods. Then as we came into our own during the civil rights era and began to, to, to get receive equal rights and riots out under came out, uh, there was a statement, a great book kind of brought this out about how Richard Nixon, he said that any act of, of racism is an act of terrorism, an act of communism. Right. And so what did that mean? Wow. What did that mean overall? They started to go ahead and provide small business association loans uh, to go ahead and rebuild the black community. And so what came in there? Liquor stores, fast food companies uh, started going inside of the neighborhoods. And what got squeezed out were were fresh grocers that had a lower profit margin. So now we created these environments that are filled with food swamps. Foods that are filled with garbage. We talked about carbohydrates before. It's not carbohydrates that are a problem. It's garbage. It's garbage. A form of garbage is what's there. Not the stuff that you chew and your jaws get tired of of rich carbohydrates like you guys talked about before. And so we get squeezed out. And so now we create these crucibles of conflict, of stress, of racism, and, and devoid of nutrients, nutritional stress. And we're surprised about the issues in terms of our health. So that's a brief look in terms of is there a direct correlation? Yes. But at the end of the day, it's business of business is business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, <laughs> just with intent. Just for sake of clarification, can, can you differentiate quickly be, with the difference between a food desert and a food swamp? Because I've heard those terms yeah, recently uh, in it. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead there. No, you got it. A food desert is when there is not enough real food. In other words, whole foods, not enough, not, and I don't mean the store, I mean whole foods like broccoli, cauliflower. You go to the corner bodega store, you go to you know, you know the, the corner store I used to go to at my grandmother's house, they had every type of candy, chips, soda, <laughs> alcohol in the store, but they you couldn't find nothing green. That wasn't, if it wasn't, unless it was painted green. Um, so um, a food desert is where you can't get real food. Um, but a food swamp is where you have um, calorie dense, nutritionally sparse foods. 
There's no nutrition. Like, so let's give you an example. Plenty of Twinkies in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Plenty of honey buns. Plenty of Oreos. Plenty of bags of potato chips, Takis, and and um, uh, uh, flaming hot Cheetos. That swamps our in neighborhoods. While you mm. can't find a cucumber or a head of lettuce, um, or an apple or a peach um, that is not rotten or, or, or and thrown to the side. So that's how you define those two things. And to and to just to echo what Columbus just said, this is what the government has done. The government did this by by uh, as, as Richard Rothstein says in his book, The Color of Law. The, the, the government participated with the developers and the local town councils and city councils in order to create areas of towns that could not be integrated, excluding blacks, making the neighborhoods where black people live more expensive per capita than the neighborhoods where white people lived. And then, of course, no one would invest in those neighborhoods because why would you invest in the neighborhoods that had the least amount of value where people were living one on top of the other because that's how they had to survive. So there's two families that live in one apartment. Um, or more. So the bottom line is, you know, there, there is an intentionality to what has happened that does bear the state of racism. And let me give you two other examples. One of them is advertising. In our talks, we talk about how uh, much more advertising is received on uh, by black young people, black children specifically, through television, radio, and back in the day for us, it was magazines and everything else. Um, that are targeted towards us. You go into black neighborhoods, they, they uh, promote the toys and the Happy Meals more than they do in other neighborhoods. Um, and so they promote these foods to the tune of billions, I wish I had all the numbers up, to the tune of billions of dollars. And because our children watch more TV and they can predict what TV shows our children watch, these foods can be targeted towards our children. Now, you would say, well, the business, the business, the business. We always say that because that's one of our guests taught us that. But here's the truth of the matter. It is no longer simply business when you know the business is killing people, right? At that point, there's an ethical, moral component that comes into it, which is why the cigarette companies have to put a warning on a cigarette. Right. There should be a warning on some of these foods before they're sold to people, quite frankly. Um, the other part of it, the other proof of it is the subsidies. Well, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, they do actually have warnings in some of the fast food restaurants, a label when you go through the door or through the uh, drive-thru. That says by eating here, you can get cancer, you can get diabetes <laughs> and high blood pressure, and people think, continue you know, to funnel only, through the line. I, I that's only in California, that. wow. Yeah, California thing. Okay. Um, but the other part of it is the subsidies. If you grew up like I grew up, I mean, you had family members. We never got any government. My mother never got government cheese for whatever reason, but we have family members who did. And that block of government cheese, you know what it was? It was the rejected fat from the dairy industry that they couldn't do anything else with. That mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan, we have a picture of him holding up a block of government cheese that he had them packaged, put together. It's basically salt, cholesterol, and animal-saturated fat, literally poison. Going back to Sister White in the spirit of prophecy, she warns us over 100 years ago that cheese is not fit to be consumed as food. She says that Mm. before she even gives the advice to stop eating meat. She says you should stop eating cheese. The government took the garbage milk fat. I want you to get this. Packaged it, made the farmers more wealthy, and then took it and gave it away to welfare recipients, food stamp recipients, and and showed it as if we were doing some great thing. Somebody had to know that there would be consequences to giving poor people, and this is not just poor black people, 
or Latinos. I was in Guam. They used to get it. Indian reservations got it. Um, giving them a food that would cause disease. And that's just one example. Let's talk about baby formula, right? All the decades of baby formula before WIC changed their ways, where we were giving women baby formula rather than having them nurse their children and give them the best possible nutrition. We could go on and on and on. And if you, if you want to believe that somehow there's no uh, connection to this and the way America views black people, I, I think it would at, at worst be naive. Wow. Right, best naive. I, I was going to ask, you know, when we first asked that question, is, is there, you know, any intentionality or racism? I, I would, I, I could see an argument where someone would say, sure, that might have been something that happened 80, you know, 100 years ago, where there was intentionality and racism. and they, But do we see any of it now? But when you brought up that advertising piece, it's like that that's advertising that's happening like right now. It, it's hard to 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 argue that. Um, but 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 not only but not only in the advertising piece. I'm I I'm sitting. I'm really you opened my eyes because where I live in this certain part of Nashville, uh, it's one of the suburbs. We have to drive almost uh, ten to fifteen minutes before we can get to a grocery store. Um, and wow. but getting to that grocery store, there are about probably about 50,000 people living in that area, but there's no grocery store. There is no nothing because wow. we built all these communities to help people to feel like we're moved out into the suburbs, but we have not, we, we have to drive far. Then people will make a decision. I don't need to go all the way over there to buy that food. So we'll stop at the, the local groceries, the local gas station and pick something up there. You, you just, you made it plain just now in terms of, the choices we have made because of the circumstances we find ourselves because we decided we want to move on up to the to the east side yeah hey, no, but you know what pastor i mean it's not even it's not even always about moving out out to the east side because i grew up inside the city i grew up in in compton and so i remember as a kid i didn't it didn't dawn on me at that time i tell this a lot of times inside of our lectures is the fact i remember going with my dad for a drive right to the grocery store mm. and he would drive literally about 25 miles away to go to a grocery mm -hmm. store. And I remember walking through those doors as a kid. I, st I love going to the grocery stores because it's like, it seemed like I was in heaven. <laughs> you had all these fruits lined up and grow in colors and everything all around completely different than what I experienced right around mm -hmm. the corner from my house. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is, but the, the key is not everyone has that possible, that, that cap uh, capacity. That ability to drive a distance, to go outside their territory, right. to purchase foods in an affordable fashion and so forth. So uh, it's a major issue. And, and I want to make sure we don't forget about the other second part to your question about do we see areas of, of racism in medicine uh, to as well from a historical perspective. Definitely want to touch on that as well. Sure. I, you know, it's I, just just a point, uh, Roger, I can remember and, and, and both of you as our guests. I, I was sent several years ago to pastor in, um, in, in South Georgia. And when I moved up there, I found a piece of property, found a house. My parents were retiring. Um, so we found a place kind of way out in the country, 40 something acres of land. And as soon as we got out there, the first thing that my Trinidadian father did was get out there and start digging up some dirt and planting some stuff. And we planted cabbage and onions and corn and tomatoes and 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 um, all kinds of stuff, lettuce and, and fruit trees, all this kind of stuff. We we 
planted all of these things and we would grow them. But the, the interesting thing was the neighbors were doing the same thing. So when we finished growing our stuff and we had too much, we would just go over to the neighbors and say, here, here's some stuff. And then they would say, oh, well, we got some stuff too. And just in that area, just because we were out in the country and we had the ability to grow some of these things that people were sharing, just being neighborly, sharing these things. And so it provided a great opportunity that sometimes we just don't get when we're in, in more you know, crowded, crowded spaces. So um, I, wow. I was able to experience that firsthand. Yeah, so you're going to speak to the issue about racism in, in medicine. Well, you know, I think it, oh, I think it, oh, in health, I should say. Yeah, no, I, I think, well, first I have to say that it still exists. And so I'll, I'll share with you all a, a story just recent. So I took, I took a loved one, um, to the hospital recently who told me that they were experiencing chest pain. All right. So I'm a cardiologist. I'm an interventional cardiologist, which means my job is to stop heart attacks in their throats. So they told me that they were experiencing exertional chest pain with a walk while, while walking and that the chest pain began to intensify and travel down their arm. And they, they called me out of fear that they were suffering a heart attack. I told them to call 911. But when I got there, they had sent 911 the ambulance away because they were they were felt embarrassed. I personally drove them to the hospital, drove them to the emergency room. And so in that moment, to an emergency room where I personally had worked before at that hospital, I performed interventions on, on coronary arteries. And I watched how the Caucasian nurse minimized the symptoms of this female. Wow. I watched how they, 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 they somehow seemed as if they questioned the integrity of whether or not they had a true intention. I watched how they did not bring them back immediately, which is a standard protocol. I watched how they did not deliver care in immediate fashion in 2022. And it tells me the fact that there is still a persistent issue that exists inside of our country. And studies have reflected this. In 2016, there was a study that showed that when looking at residents and, and, uh, and medical students, that they felt that there was a significant difference between white individuals and black individuals in their skin thickness <laughs> based mm -hmm. upon wow. the color of their skin, the melanin in wow. 2016. That as you go back in the eons in time, we only think we reflect on, on uh, the Tuskegee experiment, but the issues of atrocity began long before then, and they exist, persist long after that. That we know that there have been issues where um, there's, whether it's drapetomania, where there's a sense that because slaves wanted to run away, that they must be insane. Because how could they want to run away from something so wonderful as wow. a plantation? <laughs> that, wow. that as you begin the process and looking at the experiments, uh, uh, there was a person who, who I going to mispronounce his name, it, it, it escapes me, who basically was had experiments of radiation placed on him as a child that left his, his skull receding from the trauma that was there. That over and over throughout the eons in time, we see that these things are persistent. It's nothing that just happened. And we wonder why is there this, this concern that institutions have recognized that there is indeed the level of implicit bias in my own area of cardiology. I described to you the ER experience, but here's the thing from physicians. I oftentimes think I treat everyone the same and my colleagues do as well, but studies don't bear it out. They show the fact that people of African descent within the field of cardiology, where this is Heart Health Month, right? <laughs> that we're less likely to receive, as I mentioned before, angiograms, 
you're less likely to receive mm. referrals to um, heart failure specialists and receive defibrillators, to receive transplants, wow. to receive valve replacements, that you're less likely to have all of these therapies that are mm. standard of care. Now, when you begin the process of saying, well, what's the difference when this group of individuals have the highest burden of disease, but yet they're less likely to receive the appropriate treatment? There is indeed a persistent level of implicit bias and racism. And we say implicit bias only because in some individuals, it's subconscious. They right. think they're doing the right thing, but they pass judgments. And so those judgments, they escape their, their consciousness and they believe they're acting <laughs> out of out of normal uh, aspects there in terms of the care. So yes, racism still is is ever present in our society. Wow, wow, and I, you know, and I really don't know. Um, we we did a we did a topic on CRT, um, and and we realized it was brought out that it's not that it it's an implicit situation. There is an underlying um, sense that those are the norm this is how things ought to be and and i kind of grew up thinking there are there are we need people who can question the things that 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 we just take for granted um and and we need to really start asking questions and and, and that's what's happening here today i want to i want to jump quickly to this question um is there is there a solution is there an antithesis or an antidote to slay food and and where can we find that? Is there is there an answer to some of the problems we've been talking about? Well, there absolutely is. Um, we also talk about liberation nutrition, not just slave food. Uh, um, mm. And the liberation nutrition has everything to do with going back to the original diet. For us, from a culture perspective, um, that means you go back to the diet before slavery, um, understanding that some of the food you can't take with you. So. Um, you know, in other words, the meats that might have been eaten before, you know, you you want to get rid of those today because there's, there's no really no healthy way to get them. I mean, we've the, the studies now come out and show that you can classify processed meats like salami, bacon, hot dogs as uh, class A carcinogens, just like, just like cigarettes um, and even uh, beef, pork um, and some of the other red meats are probable carcinogens. They probably cause cancer. So um, we know that we can get out of this if we can go back to eating the way God told us to eat in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29, um, the original diet uh, before mm. the flood. That reverses disease. In fact, uh, um, we talk about telomeres in some of our talks. I did one for my company, nationally for our company this week. Um, and I talked about, uh, you know, the only way, the study showed the only way you can actually lengthen your telomeres, which are the tips of the chromosomes. So as they shorten, genetic chromosomes, as they shorten, it, it's a, it indicates that your life is being shortened uh, in a sense. Um, but you can only reverse that with a whole food plant-based diet. Exercise can slow it down or stop it. You know, sleep can slow it down or stop it, but it takes good food to reverse it. Makes sense, huh? That's why mm. the tree of life, the tree of life, right? Because it is the fruit from the tree that will probably keep our telomeres always extended when we get to the new Jerusalem and the earth made new. Um, so um, we know that there's an anecdote. The anecdote is in the scripture, um, if you really want to look. Uh, uh, and so those are the things that we have to really begin to look at. And I want to say this about, we were talking about um, the racism in the healthcare system. Someone commented that healthcare racism is everywhere. Yeah, but we, we work in the healthcare system. That's why we're, we're, we're talking about it from the perspective of the healthcare system. 
But uh, the part of the problem is our politicians, when they're running for office, they say we want universal health care. We want better health care. Everyone needs health care. You know what they never say? Everyone needs health. Mm. Everyone needs better health. Because to get better health would mean that the same politicians would have to cut ties with the dairy industry, wow. the meat industry, the processed food industry, the alcohol. Somebody asked a question about alcohol. Hopefully we can get back to alcohol and marijuana in a minute. Um, the alcohol industry, uh, the tobacco industry, the, the firearm, gun industry. I mean, the various politicians that want universal health care, many of them want some of the stuff or, or are backed by some of the stuff that puts people in the health care system in the first place. And that's on both sides of the aisle. And until that hypocrisy in America is done away with, and people go back to saying what is actually good for the people, it won't happen. And if you're waiting for the government to do it, you might wait forever. So you have to make a decision for yourself and for your family that you are going to go back and eat the way God designed for us to. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm a, I'm a jump. I'm a jump in here because I can't, uh, Eric really encapsulate all the, the nutritional aspects of it, but I'm going to give you a slightly different perspective on the antidote to uh, slave food into the slave food project, which remember it's a totality of, of, of stress, of discrimination and nutritional stress. And so when we look at the core component of what is the antidote, the antidote to stress is love. <laughs> it's love. <laughs> it's real love. And where that begins, love is an action word. And so I'm going to tell you, break it down hormonally, is that what ends up happening is a degree of oxytocin is released. So we speak about the stress hormone cascade. And what ends up happening of the constriction of the vessels and the heart racing and the ill effects of creating a diabetic state and the hypertensive state and insomnia and so forth. But but the love hormone is different. Uh, instead of fight or flight, it's tend and befriend. It's it's love and concern that all of a sudden now the vessels begin to dilate. The heart begins a reparative and restorative fashion that happens when we begin to embrace love instead of hate, instead of demise. And so as a result of love, which becomes an action, we begin to embrace forgiveness. And studies have shown that when you forgive, that you actually have improved health outcomes for your heart. Uh, That when you begin to exhibit gratitude, become gracious, then all of a sudden we see that chronic disease begins to dissipate. So there's power inside this action item of of a thing called love. That when we begin to love our creator, uh, that what ends up happening is studies have shown that people who are more inclined to go to church uh, are, are more inclined to have less addictive behaviors. Uh, that people who go to church, women who go to church, have better and improved cardiovascular outcomes compared to those who don't. There is power that's there that those who engage in prayer and meditation, prayer is speaking, meditation is listening, that all of a sudden there's less cardiovascular outcomes reduced. Mm-hmm. And so we have to begin the process as we strengthen, when we embrace love and the spiritual aspect of prayer and meditation, we strengthen our prefrontal cortex the area that reasons, and Eric breaks that down beautifully in sermons as well about the aspect of how it strengthens our mind, that now we're reasoning and we're able to make that connection towards what our goal is, because the question you have to ask yourself is, so you're healthy, now what? Mm. Mm. Now what? What now? Yeah. What's the goal? What's your purpose? You're getting healthy for what purpose? To keep doing, living the way you were living? Or you're, you're getting healthy for a particular purpose for God's plan. That's what we have to ask ourselves. And so it's connected. It's connected in terms of full circle. Wow. Wow. Mm. Let, me say, let, me, let, me, let me jump in here and say that, uh, you know, just tag team on that. You know, we talked about Romans chapter seven. The other chapter seven I love is Revelation chapter seven. 
that talks about the seal of the living God that is placed in the forehead and that the four angels should not touch the loud air wind to touch the earth or the sea um, until the servants of God have been sealed in their forehead. Being sealed in the forehead is the point of the health message. It takes clarity. In Matthew chapter, going back to Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus, when the disciples say, Lord, when shall these things and when shall be the, uh, the end of the world? He says, do not be planeo in the Greek, planeo, which means do not be deceived. Do not be led away. In order to not be deceived, and the way that the Greek puts that uh, is, to, is to have a clarity of mind and not be that one sheep that left the 99. Our health message helps us to have a clarity that helps us to not be deceived. I also believe Sabbath keeping helps us not be deceived. There's a protective power in that, but the health message clearly does. Um, and that's why it's such an important thing that we do this. It's not just about being healthy. It's about having the clarity of mind to be saved and to be sanctified um, and then to be a, a vessel. E. e. Cleveland had a great line in one of his sermons when I was at Oakwood. He said, I'm not a vegetarian so that I can live, so that I can, um, so that I can live forever. He said, I'm a vegetarian so I can live, live as long as possible to tell you Negroes this good news, right? He said, I, I, I will live the way God says live so I can live as long as I possibly can preaching this gospel. That's why he said, I'm, I'm going to be healthy. He said, being healthy doesn't save me. Eating the right diet isn't going to get me into heaven all by itself. But he said, but it allows me to, to spread this great gospel. So purpose matters. And I want to go back to one of the things Dr. Matisse said about forgiveness. It's one of my things. I have a whole sermon on. I just did in Fort Pierce back in December, the sermon on forgiveness. Um, what we learned is that one of the strongest mitigators of the consequences of stress is to forgive those who have harmed you. In fact, it's even when you looked at the studies around black women, the, it was even more evident. You ruminate the traumas and what people have done you, ruminate it over and over and over again. And with each time it passes through your conscious mind, the damage is done all over again. Wow. Forgiveness frees you from that process, buffers you from the, um, the consequences of the traumatic experiences you had. And let me just say this plainly, as painful as this is to say to black people, this is one of the reasons why we even have to forgive those who have oppressed us and done us wrong. Because as Dr. Mm -hmm. King said, if you don't send, you know, he didn't say it like this, I'll say it like this, but Dr. King said this in essence, you don't send up the blood pressure of the person you hate. Hating that person sends up your own blood pressure. Mercy. Right? Wow. Forgiving that person frees you. It liberates you. And that's one of the reasons why, um, it's really critically important that we teach forgiveness. And here's the kicker, forgive yourself as well. Mm. A lot of us mm. live our lives beating ourselves up on our past mistakes. Mm. That is the work of the accuser. And the accuser wants you stressed out and worried about your past. And, and as we all preach and say, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Come on now. Good stuff. Good mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, I was just finishing reading it. So I think one of the key things to understand about diabetes is the fact that there are more than one type of diet. There's more than one type of diabetes. Now, what we're seeing as a health community and as a nation is we're seeing that diabetes seems to be infringing. So when I came up and trained, there was something called adult onset diabetes and juvenile onset diabetes or type one that seemed to be more genetically mediated where there was a loss of the ability for your pancreas to produce insulin. But now we no longer call it adult and juvenile onset because what we're seeing is we're seeing adult or lifestyle mediated tends to occur younger and younger inside of our adolescents and inside of our kids. And we're seeing there is a, a, a preponderance of diabetics 
who are who are uh, insulin who are insulin resistant, which means that there is a really a manifestation of lifestyle obesity resistance from uh, intramyocellular lipids or fats, which is the 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 basically gumming up your 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 key <laughs> keyholes, uh, where basically the mechanism in which your body takes up nutrients to store. And when it's no longer able to do that, it persists inside your blood vessels in the form of sugar or glucose and leads to damage. So there are multiple types of diabetes, but many of the type one diabetics because of their eating practice end up also developing insulin resistance as well, long-term. And so there is still a role for your nutrition. There is still a role for your exercise. Still, There is still a role for your sleep all of which can profoundly impact the rates of diabetes inside your life and for your loved ones as well. I give every patient a cheat code. The cheat code is after you eat, walk 10 minutes. And that alone mm. is going to help your metabolism of blood sugar and can help the, the control of your uh, uh, diabetes. Yeah, good stuff. And, I, I would, uh, when, when, oh. and when you talk about talking about diabetes, um, we know that, um, as I just said, one of the key reasons we get diabetes is fat consumption. It's fat, and specifically animal fat, clogs the um, insulin receptor site, right? But so does sugar. Sugar causes the liver to make fatty acids that can also do it. So when you eat a high fat, high sugar diet, we talked about earlier, that makes you feel good. It literally is the perfect way to get diabetes. Um, the other thing I wanted to throw out there though, um, is that the type one diabetes, the juvenile, we think is purely genetic. But the studies show that you actually get increased risk of developing type 1 diabetes uh, if you're, as a child, consume cow's milk. Um, so cow's milk, because there's some way that the, there's something uh, like uh, antigenic in the cow's milk that causes, that may trigger um, uh, your own body to attack your pancreas and destroy your beta islet cells. So removing cow's milk from a child's diet probably decreases the risk of developing type 1 diabetes. Wow. Wow. So, so, so I, I, I'm seeing some some activity here in the in our chat, and um, yeah. I don't I don't think we have that as part of our questions, but we may need to touch it. Um, you tapped into the um, the concept of processed foods, but as Adventists in particular, but as people vegetarians, we are known for plant based meat substitutes. And uh, you tapped on it before with the high uh, increase in sodium and 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 the low increase of, um, of of fiber that that is necessary that's good for the body. But uh, what what would you um, how would you uh, talk about the value of the new plant based meat substitutes such as uh, Impossible Burgers and Beyond Meat and and you know Kentucky Fried Chicken has now jumped into that that arena with yeah, its nuggets right, and sure everybody is just going crazy that over person. that. What, what help help us to kind of put that in perspective that that new plant based meat substitute. Yeah, and that and now a number of people have mentioned it, but that last question, as you can yeah. see, was coming from our 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 university president, yeah. Doctor Leslie Power, Pollard. Yeah, and and I, let me give a shout out to Doctor Pollard, a mentor of mine and a good friend, and I love what he's doing with the institution. So uh, blessings to him. He asks an amazingly uh, appropriate question, and most of us Adventists, if you ate meat growing up, you still eat a lot of veggie meat <laughs> um, because. You go to lunch at church and they make the, the and back then they bring it out of cans and you know stuff that we don't you know we don't buy veggie meat in a can at least I don't we, I don't Rusty see it much cans. anymore. Let me stop. There's a few problems with the, with the meat substitutes. The first and probably 
the one that has probably caused the most damage, well, the two things that have probably caused the most damage historically is the salt content. The sodium content in these products is actually astronomical. I had a friend, very fit, very muscular, very lean, um, had a stroke. And when he did his research and looked at it, he's in the healthcare profession, he found that it was the salt intake. Um, so someone who got and run miles, he can lift, he lifts a lot of weight. It was the salt content. And he once he backed his way into it, he realized it was the fact that he ate the veggie meat products two and three times a day, you know, as part of, you know, part of his regular day. Um, so that's the first thing. We mentioned earlier as well, some of the soy protein isolates that sometimes can actually act like the animal proteins that kind of work as cancer promoters because it's so concentrated and so processed. So obviously uh, edamame, the, you know, the soy beans themselves are very healthy. They do not cause breast cancer. Um, the tofu, tempeh, all those are very good foods, minimally processed. Once it's hyper-processed, it changes things. Now, in defense of the newer meats, there was a study done through UCSF, I think it was, um, where they looked at, they compared the new some of the newer meats to real meat, and they put people on it and looked at cardiovascular outcomes. According to the study, um, they basically said that, you know, you still you did have better cardiac outcomes um, from the meat substitutes than the other ones. Uh, my advice to, to, to people is, Probably on Sabbath afternoon, it's probably going to be pretty hard to get away from some of these things. Um, so if you're going to make an exception, that's probably the day to do it. But the rest of the week, it's better to, to eat whole food, you know, uh, pots of lentils and brown rice and quinoa, um, make your own black bean burgers, um, that type of thing. The, the tough thing about this message is it takes time. So you've got to learn how to manage as, as part of the whole liberation nutrition and um uh, Dr. Batiste is actually excellent at, at explaining this kind of stuff. How do we actually put these things into practice to save our lives? Um, and it takes dedication, but it goes back to what we said earlier. I mean, you know, you have to feel worthwhile in a society that may have made us, most of us, not feel so worthwhile most of our lives. Um, and so you've got to value yourself in order to do this. Wow. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll chime in briefly as it relates to to these burgers, you know, um, and thank you, Dr. Pollard, for the uh, the question. Like like Eric, you know, I appreciate your mentorship years ago and so forth as well. You know, I, I participate in, inside of an article through Journal of American College of Cardiology, where what we were doing is we were working on putting together an update on plant based nutrition. And one of the things like Eric mentioned in terms of there was a, a unique article that was done comparing those two uh, components and showing that markers of inflammation were reduced in individuals who consumed the plant-based burgers. Now, here's the thing. You have to ask yourself, what's your why? What's your question are you really asking? If your question is, is this beneficial to my health? Uh, is this action going to help reduce my burden of disease in the future? That's really the, if that's your question, where are you comparing it to? So is the Beyond Burger or whatever it is, is it better than red meat? Absolutely. Is it better than red beans and rice, black beans, uh, curry lentils? No, absolutely not. So you have to ask yourself where you're at. And you have to also think in terms of when I'm taking care of patients in the hospital and these patients may be smokers, they may be dependent on nicotine, they may be addicted to nicotine. You don't get, you know what we do in the hospital? We'll give them a nicotine patch. Uh, that nicotine patch doesn't mean that it's healthy for them. It's to kind of help them make that bridge and that transition <laughs> towards smoking to not smoking. So in many instances, yeah. these meats really serve the function of transitioning for many individuals who are skeptical 
they're not quite ready on that journey of, of health, that marathon of health, as Eric mentioned, they're not quite ready that this may be a transition. I, I, I talk, I've coached a lot of people inside my career. And I'll never forget, I was down in New Orleans. I had the honor of being down there in New Orleans to, to speak about this very topic. And I remember the Uber driver, we had given him a flyer with my information on it. And he happened to pick us up and he said, oh, I checked you out, Doc. I checked you out. I don't want to hear anything you guys say. Wow. I was like, come on, you're going to treat me like that? He's like, I don't want to hear one thing. An hour later, I'm debating, I'm giving him everything. I'm throwing the kitchen sink at him, trying to get him convinced to go whole food plant-based. All I could get that man to do was to try uh, uh, one of these fake burgers. He said, okay, doc, I'll try it. I'll tell you. That was one of my greatest accomplishments because I believe that that may be the door to open up for that individual, that the other components of what I plan to see. And now someone else comes behind me that maybe he stops by a church down there in New Orleans. <laughs> maybe he stops by a church where they're serving health promoting foods. And all of a sudden now it's like the bells start to go off. So there is a role for these things, but we have to ask ourselves if we, our goal is truly health, then every action that we do every day has to be geared towards that. Sounds good. So listen, um, how can we be more mindful and what are some of the steps that we can take to ensure? Um, so, so earlier on, when we first started the, 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 the show today, um, somebody used the word users uh, in reference to food. And whenever there's a user, there's a pusher. Um, so, so, so this question is saying, how can we ensure that we do not become pushers of slave food and what part of our consumptive spending power or what part does or, or can our consumer spending power play in this? And that's, uh, again, a kind of a loaded question here at the at the tail end of our program today. But how do we how do we avoid becoming pushers and what part can our consumer spending power play? And we're talking about we talked about um, the weaponization of food, the the racial part of this or, or, or the, the potential racial part of this. Is there something that as a community that we can do with our dollars that make a difference um, in this uh, scenario that we're looking at? I'll, I'll jump in and start and start off. I think if for many of us um, who are of the Adventist faith and grew up being uh, vegetarian, we remember the days when the only milks were the ones that you got from a powder bag. Yeah. <laughs> we remember that at the grocery so store, there wasn't any, there weren't any of these <laughs> options that were available unless you went to the old fashioned Adventist book center that was there in order to get some veggie meats and everything else like that. But guess why there's a shift? Uh, because once again, the dollars dictate that all of a sudden these, these items become available, that there is an, an area, there's an arena for it. And so our dollars do have power. And collectively throughout the eons of time, it's been demonstrated. Just like our voting, our voting rights, our votes count when we're allowed to vote. Different subject, different day. Um, but when we're investing our dollars in the right place, it will determine and shift. It can play a role in shifting things. But I think even different than that, on an individual basis, whether or not I'm at church or going to someone's house for a potluck once this quarantine and these restrictions begin to, to disseminate to or to, to relinquish, that we can't really have this pressure that we put on people. Uh, a little bit won't hurt you. Come on, you do, you're losing too much weight. Uh, come on, you can have a little bit. It's, right. it's Sabbath afternoon. Come on, celebrate with us. It's your birthday. We put all these pressures mm -hmm. that trigger memories of, of engagement. 
And so now it's harder for individuals to kind of maintain that passion. And so I think we have to we have to be a community of support, of resiliency. You know, Eric brought the idea of, I believe he brought the idea of epigenetics, which is the ability of the body to that your DNA is not your destiny. That, uh, that your DNA actually has these light switches, these, these dials that turn up and turn down disease. And so one of the things that we know is that lifestyle and food also predicts it. But here's the thing. Community resiliency predicts it. Uh, that when we look at the ability of the community to be supportive, it can really protect, be protective. And so not only from a standpoint of direct influence, but in terms of direct health outcomes. And so that's why what you mentioned is so important in terms of community support, resiliency, and really using our dollars um, in that fashion. Eric, anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, what I, I, I was, you know, I used to be one who thought, you know, try and uh, manage and control things. But, but as I studied addiction medicine at, at Loma Linda University when I was in residency there, I realized you can't tell a crack addict to just have a little bit of crack. Um, wow. You can't even tell a nicotine cigarette smoker just have a little bit of cigarettes. And food works the same way. Um, we know that in cheese, I keep going back to cheese, um, there, you know, there are cases of morphones that are like almost that are related to opiates like morphine and heroin in cheese, very low dose, but it's part of the reason why cheese is so hard to get, give up. So some things you actually do need to just let go of, like you can't, there's no little bit, there's no moderation. If, if you try and moderate, you know, with an addictive substance and some of these foods, again, the food industry has, has food chemists and engineers who've designed the food so that when you start eating it, you can't stop eating it. Um, and, and they tell you that again. You know, once you stop, once you pop, you can't stop. You know, they, they tell you that. Um, so when you talk about mindfulness, you really do have to. Um, you really do have to um, be cognizant of what you eat. One of the things I tell people, I don't know if I have one laying around here, but I, I tell them to take index cards. You know, because uh, I do this for myself. Take the index cards. And you write on one side of the index card, you know, um, one on one side you write one reason, the reason you want to make this this lifestyle change, and on the other side you write a Bible verse um, that gives you the motivation to make the change. So you might write, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Um, 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 uh, you know, um, love not the world, neither the things that are in this world. Um, you know, there's a lot of them you could write. And when you write on one side, you know, I want to be alive to see my child graduate from college. And you write on the other side, a Bible verse that is a promise. Before you eat, to be mindful, you pull out the card and you read the two sides of it. All of a sudden, it changes the way you won't mindlessly eat anymore. And here's the power. When Christ was challenged on the issue of appetite, he used the word of God. He did not fight in his willpower and his strength. He said, it is written, man should not live by bread alone. And so this is the power that comes from incorporating God's word as a sword to fight against the enemy when he attacks. And he will attack. Uh, that's just the reality of, of what happens. On the other issue of, spend, of uh, spending power and so forth, it would be a beautiful thing if black America rose up together and said, you know, we're not buying any more fast food. We're not buying any more junk food. Wow. Uh, because then all of a sudden they would put different things in our neighborhoods. Magic Johnson, I have a mm -hmm. lot of respect for Magic Johnson from a, especially a, as a, a, not a, a, obviously as a basketball player, uh, but even more so as a financial person. Because Magic Johnson said, you know what? Movie theaters and Starbucks and gyms can survive in our neighborhoods. 
what a lot of these grocery stores have said is, you know, we, we're not in these neighborhoods because we wouldn't make any money. The risk of theft is too high. That's literally what they said. I, I worked in the health department in, a, in, a, in, in Los Angeles County, and literally this is what they would say why they couldn't bring grocery stores in. But Magic brought in businesses, and I'm not saying that we support Starbucks or, 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 or movie theaters, but he brought in movie theaters, Starbucks, grocery stores, and um, gyms that thrived in the very neighborhoods everyone said it could never thrive in which means that our economic power, even in these places, is still tangible and real, um, which means that we collectively can vote with our dollar, vote out the poison pushers, and bring in people who would give us better options. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. Pastor Wade, I, I, I think it's, it's worthwhile to, to also give a shout-out to to Dr. Pollard and, and Oakwood University and Oakwood yeah. Farms and that, that mobile truck that they put dollars to they they put money into saying we're going to take um uh, good food into food swamps and into you know in order to make sure that there are options and they're educating and and that the place that they built there on campus to help educate and and provide care for the community so and and these are black people this is this is you know us you know working for people and not just in the black community but anybody um to be able to make that and so um that's that's a very tangible way that we can see that people are putting money and and using you know the consumer spending power to make a difference in in these areas and i think we need to really identify the fact when dr pollard shared about the food desert right there in northern alabama right there in huntsville um right in the northern part of huntsville right where the school is you you wonder uh, there's so many options of food there's so many things there and yet still it is a a food desert Sometimes we just need to recognize what is right before us so that we can be uh, mobilized to do something. Uh, Our time has gone, uh, Pastor Paul, but before we let our guests go, we would like them to share a little bit about how we can help the Slave Food Project. Uh, just, just when you go to their website, you go when you go to the website, guys, and you look at the, the, the imagery and you see what's happening, um, how can we uh, help you? How can we be a part of uh, what you're doing to support what you're doing? I'm excited about it. What can you tell us that we can do to, to join in behind you? I'll jump in then first, you know, so I think I think just very similar fashion to what you all mentioned, be supportive. I think our broadcast that we produce on YouTube, Slave Food Project, follow us, like us, share it. That's there. Um, I think the words of encouragement are so powerful. You know, uh, the pastor's wife gave me a word of encouragement that was very powerful. It's helpful in terms of knowing that folks out there are listening and that they, it's, it's resonating with them as we seek to do God's work. You know, we want to deliver this message on whatever, through whatever media um, will have us and are available through written word, through books, um, through potentially documentaries, which is still our ultimate goal. And so we're working to that end. Thank you. Okay. All right. I would only add this. We would ask that the saints of God continue to lift us in prayer. The Bible says that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So keep the ministry in prayer. Um, and we just ask that God would direct us to what he would have us to do. Good. Good. Well, absolutely. Well, we will continue to do that, lifting you both and your ministry up in prayer. We appreciate uh, and salute you for what you were doing and the contribution you are continuing to make. 